Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There are a couple important things to note before I tell you about my experience with the hot springs. You're more than welcome to go check out this place yourselves. Do a quick Google search of Diamond Fork Hot Springs, Utah, and you'll get hundreds of results telling you exactly how to get there. For those of you that are curious, it is about an hour and a half drive from Salt Lake City. I wouldn't, however, recommend that you go by yourself or at night. Another important thing to know is that where my experience took place and the land surrounding it has a significant history especially related to the natives. Unfortunately, most of the recorded histories about the exceptionally bloody conflicts between the natives and the early settlers. Just a couple examples are Black Hawk's War and the Provo War and the Walker War. I also wish it to be known that I'm quite fond of natives and what I know of their culture, and I have absolutely nothing against them. In fact, I have several close friends that have heritage. I do not mean to offend or accuse by telling my experience, and I mention this side note only because of the possible link between my experience and various legends about so-called skinwalkers. I'll provide you the facts, and you can make of it what you'd like. That being said, the Diamond Fork Hot Springs are a gym nestled a good half an hour drive, a subsequent hike up the canyon and away from the city. I'd been there several times before my wife Kenna and I decided to take a Monday off and hike there again this past winter. The springs are quite popular, and during the summer they tend to draw a large crowd of college students, scout troops, and old men that are overly fond of publicly bathing nude. I'd gone in the winter with my cousin several years previous, and at that point we had the springs to ourselves, so I convinced Kenna to spend one of her days off hiking to them with me. January 11th, 2016. We began our hike just before 1pm, thinking that this would give us ample time to hike to the springs, enjoy soaking for a couple of hours, and then get back in the car before sundown. I'd hiked to the springs in the winter before, and I knew that each winter the road is blocked off to cars, well before the trail to the springs begins. This is due to snow, though. Honestly, it seemed to me like it wouldn't be that hard for Plow to go additional four-ish miles. I guess I just forgot how far four miles is when you're walking through snow and ice. Nevertheless, we walked through the gate, the road was still open to hikers and snowshoers, and began our hike. We enjoyed ourselves and took breaks about every 30 minutes, each break thinking that the trailhead must just be around the next road. Shortly before our first break, I noticed a hole, and I say hole because cave would be too generous. It was in the side of a mountain to the left of us. It was obviously a man-made hole, and it was covered by a section of chain-link fence, but it still piqued my curiosity. It was only about 30 feet from the trail, so I told my wife I'd like to check it out, and she'd happily come up with me. 
Upon further investigation, we found that it was not much more than a boring hole. We used our flashlights to shine as far back into the hole as we could, but all we could see was some abandoned piping. After taking another five-minute break, we continued on further into the canyon. We walked and walked and walked. The time wore on, and much earlier than we would have liked, our feet began to ache. I was beginning to regret insisting that we go on this adventure when finally we turned around a bend and saw the bridge that marks the trailhead. With newfound energy, we rushed over to the sign with information about the various trails. At this point, it was about three o'clock, and I was beginning to become a bit concerned about having enough light to make it back before sundown. But we were already this far, and we weren't going to turn around before spending at least some time soaking in those springs. Plus, we had flashlights just in case, and the way back to the car, albeit lengthy, was very straightforward. So, we pushed forward, knowing that we were well over halfway there. Our strength seemed to diminish at an exponential rate, which was concerning because we'd had over a five-mile hike back to the car, but I knew we'd make it back somehow, perhaps with more frequent breaks than on the way up. We soon began to smell that sulfur odor that was a sure sign that we were getting very close. We ended up seeing some bikers as we approached the springs. They were riding some of those fat bikes that have huge tires and are designed for the snow. We were happy to see them coming toward us, and this meant they were leaving and we'd probably have the springs to ourselves. After letting them pass, we hiked another ten minutes or so and finally reached the springs. I cannot explain how heavenly of a sight to behold those springs were. The combination of the milky blue water, the red rock with the snow on it to our left and right, the blue sky above, and the waterfall about a hundred yards ahead. It was too much to take in at once. And best of all, we had it all to ourselves. We quickly stripped down to our swimming suits and hopped in. It felt Incredible, truly like stepping into healing waters. We relaxed for our bed and our noses quickly adjusted to the sulfur smell. Unfortunately, our bodies also adjusted to the water temperature, and before long, the water didn't feel as amazingly warm as it did first. There are a few places between the first spring and the waterfall further along the trail where water bubbles out of the earth and flows into a pool of its own, so I figured I'd check out a couple of the other pools and see if I could find a hotter one. I managed to climb up the runoff of the other pools, thinking that this would save my feet from freezing. It did, but in the process, my feet slipped several times on the mossy rocks and were fairly banged up by the time I reached the other pools. To my delight, these poles were significantly warmer, so I rushed back and beckoned my wife to come join me in these warmer springs. After a very brisk 30-second dash, we jumped in and I yelped briefly as I realized I have jumped a bit too close to the mouth of the spring. We soaked and enjoyed ourselves for about an hour. We ate some of the chips and granola bars that we'd packed in and I downed a good deal of cherry coke. Perfect drink for a hike, right? At this point, I'd accepted the fact that for at least some of the hike back... It would be in darkness, and we'd have to use our flashlights. From the springs, it was hard to tell just how much of the sun had set, since there are mountains rising steeply to both the east and the west, and the sun is only visible overhead for around 
five hours in the middle of the day. At about five, we decided we really needed to get going. As much as we were dreading the hike back. So we dried off, took a few pictures, and headed out. Shortly after beginning the hike back, I realized that my feet were immensely sore and that my legs were already begging for a break. I mentioned this to Kenna, and she mentioned that she was feeling the same. I could tell that we were both in a mood to complain, so I determined to try and keep the mood light and the conversation lively to distract us from our discomfort. Things got very dark very fast. We hadn't even reached the halfway point from the springs to the main road when we started seeing stars above us. We had a couple flashlights with us, but I figured we should put off using them for as long as we could, since I just grabbed them from my parents' house and had no idea how long they'd last. I also hadn't thought to bring extra batteries. All was well, though. As our eyes had adjusted with the darkness and making out the snow-packed trail wasn't too difficult. I could tell that Kenna was getting as tired as I was, so in an attempt to distract ourselves from our weariness, I asked her about a scary movie that she'd seen with a friend a few days previous. As she told me the plot, I began to feel a bit anxious and jumpy, but nothing more than what would be expected. It was partway through Kenna's explanation of the plot, though, that I felt a surreal, sinking feeling. It was as though my insides were being squeezed and I was descending into a state of panic. I generally don't get overly scared when reading or hearing scary stories, especially if I know it's just a movie, but this was different. I determined that it must be due to our circumstances, being isolated in the mountains, far from anyone else with our darkness surrounding us on all sides. From the beginning of the sinking feeling to attempting to justify it and brush it off was only a matter of seconds. I hadn't realized it, but Kenna had paused her explanation and hiked in silence for those few seconds, then hastily wrapped it up and moved on to another subject. I was secretly glad that she'd finished so quickly and figured that some discussion on the lighter topic would probably push out the overwhelming feeling of panic and paranoia that had overtaken me. It was about at this point that I began to hear the whispering. There's a river that runs next to the trail and down about five feet in most places, and I tried to brush the noise off as the sound of rushing water. The thing that made me especially uneasy, though, was that the noise wasn't just coming from the river to the left of us. It was coming from the right and from behind as well. Kenna had gone silent again. I hadn't paid much attention as I was quite distracted by the noises. I started out very quiet, almost too quiet to even notice over the sound of the river, and slowly it grew louder. They never grew loud enough to completely get rid of the doubt that they were there, but I was sensing a change in Kenna's disposition as well. Shortly thereafter, she said my name, which made me nearly jump out of my skin and asked if I'd be okay taking a break. I tried to appear calm and said that I would, though the feeling of panic was still as strong as ever. It seemed to scream that we needed to get away from where we were right now. 
We sat down in the snow and didn't talk much. I think I mentioned something about how we must be getting close to the road and that then at least we'd be on a wide-paved road rather than this dirt trail. I didn't dare ask Kenna if she was feeling or hearing anything, in part because I didn't want it to sound like the scary movie plot was getting to me and more in part because I didn't want her to confirm that the weird stuff going on wasn't just inside my head. Unfortunately, the whisperings hadn't stopped while we rested. In fact, they seemed more real than ever. I was getting antsy and anxious again to at least be making our way toward our car and sure safety. I suppose it was more desire to be making our way away from whatever was behind and around us. At this point I began to shiver, and pointing this out to Kenna, I suggested we keep pushing onward. I knew that it wasn't too cold, at least not cold enough to make me shiver like I was. Put simply, I was overwhelmingly terrified of the darkness around us and what it contained. We hopped up and continued onward. All the time I was hoping and praying that we would see the bridge marking the trailhead and at least make it out of the dirt trail and back onto pavement. I knew that we would have a several mile walk back to the car after crossing the bridge, but there was something comforting about the thought of being in a wider road. As we came upon a rather steeper part of the trail, recognized it as a landmark that was very close to the bridge, I decided we should pull out our flashlights for this portion. I didn't want either of us slipping on ice or tripping on a route and falling into the river below and among whatever else might be down there. We each took a flashlight, and I decided to go behind Kenna just in case she started sliding backwards. As we started climbing up, I looked down at the path and noticed the strange tracks that the bikes had left in the snow. I also noticed some other strange tracks that were going around and over the bike tracks. It looked like a small party of people with bare feet had gone through with a pack of large dogs. My mind was trying to put things together quickly, but it, it was struggling. Those bikers had been the only people that we'd seen, but these foot paw prints were certainly the people that had come after the bikers. Another strange thing was that these prints were not only on the trail, but were left deep in the snow to either side, seeming to go off in random directions. Some tracks came to the trail, others left it, and everywhere they were, there were large paw prints mixed in with human footprints. At first this came as a relief to me. My first thought was that there just must be some very dedicated campers who decided to bring their dogs along somewhere close by. The thought of some tough, burly campers nearby in these forsaken mountains was like a ray of light in my mind. Then a point of confusion began to form. Small at first, but then very concerning. Campers don't go hiking around in the snow and bare feet. And this point was much too far from the springs for someone to be walking around without shoes. This thought process, from terrified to hopeful, back to terrified and concerned, happened within a matter of seconds. Kenna had stopped and turned to me and pointed out the prints in the snow as well. I tried to brush it off with a chuckle and a, yeah, what the heck are these people thinking? but the look of concern on her face only confirmed that I was not alone in my worried thoughts. 
The panic was again overcoming me, and I wished more than ever that the whispering would stop. All I could say is, let's go. And we pushed on with even more determination than before. I kept looking behind us, every time expecting to see something following. Each time before I looked back, my stomach would do a flip, but not once did I see anything suspicious. We kept our flashlights on for the rest of the hike out, and at long last, we saw the bridge ahead. We quickly crossed it, and without a word, continued onto the main road. Roughly four more miles, and we'd be safe and sound in the car. To my immense relief, the whisperings seemed to quiet down now that we were on the road. My legs and feet were aching like the dickens, so I asked Kenna if we could take another quick break. She obliged, and I very quickly regretted making that decision. The river still flowed by the road, but it was not nearly as close as it was to the dirt path, and therefore didn't make any sounds. At this point, the whispers, though, quieter than they have been on the dirt trail, were very clear and undeniably existent. I stared back at the bridge, wishing that the maddening noise and accompanying sense of extreme paranoia would go away. As I looked to Kenna to see how she was reacting to the menacing noise, I noticed she had her head in her hands and seemed to be shaking. I put my arm around her shoulder and pressed my head up against hers. As I looked down, I froze. The snow we were sitting on was covered in human footprints, along with those enormous paw prints. Again, there seemed to be no method or destination in mind for whoever or whatever had been stomping around here. I shined my flashlight with a shaky hand in each direction, trying to figure out where these things had gone. I followed one set of footprints that ascended up the side of the hill to our right and saw that the human prints ended and those huge animal prints picked up right where they had left off. It felt as if I was descending into madness. I wanted to cry. I began to feel angry toward these things. Was this some sick joke? I wanted to scream and call out these things to stop messing around and get on with whatever they were trying to do to us. More than anything, I wanted this all to end. With the hot tears stinging my face and this newfound anger giving me a boost of energy, I pulled Kenna up by her hand and without a word we continued at a brisk pace down the road. I could not shake the darkness. This was so much darker than anything I'd ever experienced. It was horrible and overwhelming. Even the stars above seemed extremely dim. The darkness was pressing in all around us, above us, below us, and the worst of it all, it seemed to be inside of us. Strange thoughts entered my mind, wondering what acts of evil could bring such a feeling to this place, wondering if we'd done anything to bring this upon ourselves. Was this some sacred place that we were trespassing on? Had we done something to offend these creatures? Whatever the case, I hated this area, and I felt that I was beginning to give in to the evil ambient darkness that seemed to be consuming us. I wanted to give up. The thought entered my mind that embracing this evil might be the only way out. Kenna saved me from my own thoughts. 
Her sweet voice pierced my dark thoughts and halted this internal spiraling. She had stopped and softly said my name. After taking a second to recover, I asked how she was holding out. She pointed off to the right, toward where her flashlight was shining on a patch of juniper bushes. Again, that invisible hand seemed to clench my stomach and I froze momentarily. A pair of eyes were reflecting back at us. I tried to regain my composure and after a few seconds I noticed that the eyes remained unblinking. I quickly realized that they were that of a dead animal. The awkward angle and lack of movement gave that away. As I continued to stare, I realized that this was not just a single dead animal. There were five or so dead deer, and what made my stomach really churn was the amount of blood covering a large patch of the road. I turned away as the sight made me lightheaded and shifted my focus to the ground right in front of us. Again, the snow was covered in those cursed footprints, this time painted with blood. I'll spare you the details, but let me say it seemed that the creatures had enjoyed themselves immensely at this horrid spot, and there were several trails of blood streaking in the snow. Still focusing on the ground, I led us forward and to the left around this horrible scene of carnage. Averting my eyes from the worst of it, I kept expecting to encounter the smell of rotting flesh, but it never came. I guess the deer carcasses were too fresh. The cold weather probably helped, too. Soon thereafter, we passed campground, a landmark that meant we were getting closer to our blessed car. It was at this point that the hollering began. When I heard the first shout, a chill went down my whole body, and I felt sick to my stomach. This was an inhuman shout, and it wasn't far behind us. I looked back, nearly tweaking my neck in the process, but I still couldn't find anything. It was indescribably terrifying. I wished that I could see something so that I could at least know what we were up against. Anything I felt would be better than being kept in this state of knowing something was there, but not knowing what it was. We hurried forward toward the car, our legs and feet protesting every step, and the hollering seemed to grow ever closer and louder. Every twenty seconds or so, I would quickly scan to the left, right, and behind. Each time, I hoped that I would see something to relieve me from this deranging state of not knowing. Still, I was terrified to the core of what I might see. Finally, after hours of wishing we were here, we rounded a bend and saw our beautiful car. Never in my life was I so happy to see it. My moan of joy was cut short, however, as I did one more brief scan of our surroundings. Upon looking behind us, I saw several dark figures moving slowly toward us. A few had their heads raised, and I wondered what it had been thinking when I'd wished that I could see what these creatures were. Each of them were in human-like in form, though they were unusually tall and walking on all fours. They were all covered in thick, reddish-brown hair and had bright red eyes that reflected perfectly in the dim light of my flashlight. I'll never forget those eyes. What terrified me to the very center and still haunts me to this day is the expression they all wore. 
Each that had their head up was staring right at me as they slowly crawled forward, and they were each wide-eyed, wearing a toothy grin. It felt as if they were boring inside me with their stares, and I was certain we were going to die. At this point, I wasn't afraid of death. I was instead terrified of what the alternative would be once they caught up to us. I could see an excitement and twisted joy in their faces as if they were playing a favorite game of theirs, feeding off of our terror. Oh, I wish I could describe the blackness that surrounded them. It was a blackness that was felt as much as it was seen. It was horribly fascinating, almost even enticing, but those terrifying creatures were so vile that at no point did I consider moving even an inch toward them. At this point, I went nearly berserk. Luckily, Kenna hadn't looked back yet and was marching faithfully on toward the car. When I finally uprooted myself from the spot and found my voice, I cried out to Kenna to run and do not look back. I'd caught up to her at this point, and she turned to look at me and possibly behind. I screamed, Don't! And she seemed startled by my state of near insanity. She looked forward toward the car again, and we both sprinted straight forward, adrenaline overcoming weariness. We jumped in, slammed the doors, I fumbled with the keys, and left off the clutch quicker than I intended, nearly killing the engine. The darkness seemed to be thickening by seconds. As I unintentionally peeled out, flinging mud and snow all over, Kenna turned around and screamed. I looked in the rearview mirror and saw the creatures were mere feet from our car. Their sick faces were ecstatic with excitement. Their wide grins made me shout and put the paddle to the floor. Soon we were zooming along the canyon at about 40 miles an hour, very dangerous for just a small winding road. And somehow these fiends were keeping up with us. Everything about them was incredibly unnerving, their horrible gallop to those perverted smiles. I prayed that we would reach straight away where we could go faster and perhaps by some miracle outrun these beasts. Out of the blue, the darkness seemed to fit. The stars shone more brightly than they had all night, and I was overcome with relief. I looked in the rearview mirror and saw the creatures now far behind us, leaping up the sides of the hills to our left. It was still a sickening sight, but somehow I knew they were done toying with us at last. We drove in silence for several minutes until we reached the highway. <sighs> Sweet relief to see other humans. Seeing the warm glow of their headlights was like walking up to a hot fire after being cold. I turned to Kenna and saw that she was crying, and I, in turn, began to cry. We cried and hugged, but remained silent as we sat there next to the highway. There was nothing to say at that point. Shortly after getting back on the highway, I noticed I was quite nauseous and shaky. I pulled over and threw up and felt much better afterward. At long last, the paranoia left me. I felt like a new person. We got home around 7.30. We turned on all the lights, shut and locked the door and stayed up all night. Neither of us wanted to sleep, so we stayed up holding each other tight and trying to distract ourselves with movies. Neither of us talked about what we had gone through and well until the next day. And the sun was high and everything was bright. I could tell neither one of us wanted to be the one to bring it up. I felt that if we talked about it, we would solidify that it really happened. But 
I finally brought it up. It was almost a relief to have it out in the open. We've told a select few people about this experience, and much of it is still quite confusing to us. We still have some questions that may forever remain unanswered, such as what in the world were those creatures? What did we do to warrant their pursuit? They were certainly the quickest creatures we've ever seen, so why didn't they catch up to us? What would have happened if we had tried to confront them? All we know is that there is a serious evil presence up that canyon. And if you don't believe me, you know where to find it. Before we start tonight's last story, there are quite a few warnings. First and foremost, there is um, a very strong depiction of suicide. It's not sugar-coated, it's very descriptive, and it's pretty graphic. Secondly, there was a lot of talk of addiction, specifically alcoholism. And finally, there is talk of domestic abuse and domestic violence. If any of these things are triggering or hurtful to you in, in any sense, and you don't feel comfortable, don't worry. You can set this one out. There are plenty of other videos on the channel to watch. Now, let's get into the story. Death came to me that night as I sat numbly in a puddle of my own desperate blood and tears. And when I saw him, a tall entity clothed in a robe so black it reached past the depths of darkness I felt inside my heart, I'd been upset. Not about one thing in particular, but multiple things. I'd made so many mistakes that trying to put myself back together had become harder than reassembling an eggshell. A year earlier, I'd lost the most important person in my life, the only girl I truly loved. Penny. I could only blame myself. I'd spent the past year blaming myself for betraying her, betraying her trust. She'd found a new guy, a better guy than I am, one that brought her flowers, took her out on fancy dates, and was loyal to her. And all that reminded me of how many chances I used to have to do all those things for her. Six months earlier, the guilt and pain got to me, tore at my soul, and to numb the pain, I took sleeping pills with alcohol every night, dreading the moment I'd wake up to another sunny, lonely day. Four months earlier, I'd lost my job and my scholarship because the depression and substance abuse kept me rooted to the spot. I didn't want to face a world where I'd have to watch everyone else swim as I was slowly sinking. Three months earlier, I lost my friends and family as well. I'd become distant and emotionless. I turned down invites, didn't show up for holiday get-togethers, blew up on anyone who told me that I needed help. I was in chaos. And I could only blame myself. 
one month earlier. I'd bought a small rectangular case of razors, adding self-abuse to the substance abuse. I felt the smallest release when I felt the sharp sting and saw the deep red flow down my wrist. And that night, I called my ex-girlfriend, slightly tipsy, but truthful all the same. I told her I loved her. I begged her for another chance. I cried harder than I'd cried in months, just at the sound of hearing her voice. She told me one thing and one thing only. I don't love you anymore, Calvin. And I never will. She hung up the phone immediately after, and all I could do was stare blankly at the corner of the room. But as everything hit me at once, it hit me harder than a car going full speed. I didn't hesitate. I swallowed the rest of my sleeping pills, gulped down the remaining vodka straight from the bottle, and used those razors to cut deeper than I'd ever cut. So here I sat, hopeless and alone. But I wasn't alone. I looked down at my bloody wrist for mere seconds, and when I looked back up, he was there. A normal person would have been hysterical and afraid, but I wasn't normal anymore. I wasn't surprised he was there. No, I welcomed it. Calvin, he spoke in the most baritone voice I'd ever heard, lower than the voiceovers on every movie preview, and he said that one word with a disapproving sigh. The way he said it made me feel like a kid again, as if I'd done something and lied about it, but I wasn't lying now. The proof was in the mess that I was myself at that moment. I sobbed shakily. (laughs) I'm sorry. I said. For whatever reason, I felt like I had to apologize, so I did. You've spent a long time being sorry, Calvin. But not once did you say sorry to yourself. A crease formed in between my eyebrows as I mulled over what he'd just said. He came to me slowly. He wanted me to see that my only enemy was myself. Do you give all the souls you come across helpful advice? I thought you were death, not a psychologist. I raised an eyebrow at him, still unnerved by the fact that I was looking to an endless black hole where his face should be. He forced a deep, short laugh. (laughs) No. Mostly just the ones like you. They take it into their own hands to decide fate. It's not up to you, Calvin. So you give advice to your suicide victims. What does that mean? He sighed again, as if he'd explained it thousands of times before. I'm sure he had. It means you don't get to decide this. It means I'm giving you another perspective. I stood up, curiosity hanging on every word. What perspective could that be? The only way I see things is that I'm a horrible crap excuse for a human being, so why be afraid of dying when I'm more afraid to live? I had to do this. 
I needed to do this. And I'm showing you, Calvin, what living can do for you. A hint of persuasion sounded in his voice. Tell me, Death, what do I have to live for? The question came out harshly, but he didn't flinch. Listen closely. What if I told you that you'd make it through this depression, not fully healed but controlled by medication and therapy? What if I told you that because you'll overcome this depression, you'll get another job, and the job will pay for the education you dissed? When you're done with that education, you'll be admired, admired by your friends, your family, and most importantly, your ex-girlfriend. They'll see the greatness in you that you know you have. They'll be proud of you, proud of that change. You won't be able to look at a bottle of vodka without being sick. And what if I told you that your career will pay for the expensive ring you'll use to propose to your one and only? And you'll be able to give her all the flowers and dates and loyalty you failed to give before. Most importantly, what if I told you you'd be able to give her a dream wedding as well? And give her two beautiful children, a girl and a boy. What if I told you you'd be missing out on a life by choosing to give up? Tears rimmed my eyes opaquely. I can be happy again? I asked hopefully, afraid of what the answer might be. But his answer was the biggest relief I'd ever felt. Yes, you can be happy again. I wiped my wet cheeks and cracked a trembling smile. I'd say I'd want to live. Then I am no longer needed. The finality in his voice diminished the tension I'd felt before. As I grinned wider, I let out a half-cry chuckle. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, go to the hospital, get your stomach pumped, and seal up your wounds. Goodbye. And in a flash, the black void that was him just vanished. For days afterward, I couldn't get rid of that smile. The nurses and doctors that helped me were puzzled by it. A man being treated for a suicide attempt is this happy. I knew to them there was nothing right about it, but I hadn't felt right in my whole life. Because of my... Obvious mental health issues, I had stayed in the mental ward for a month after I healed physically. Just like Death said, I still had the memories of my depression, but it was nothing the therapy and medication couldn't fix. After I was released, I found a job at a call center that paid slightly more than minimum wage. It wasn't the best of jobs, but I was sure glad to have it. I saved money for a few months and started to go to school again in the fall. I was working on a business degree. My friends and family were there to watch me graduate as I'd never felt more thankful. Finally, I was making people proud again. I wasn't failing. I didn't even drink that night with the rest of my friends. I didn't want to touch another drop of alcohol. I spent that night with the people closest to me, all seated at a large table at the best restaurant in town. And I'm glad I chose to do so that night, because our waitress happened to be the girl I missed so badly and still loved. She looked 
surprised to see me, but she also looked glad. Calvin? She said, staring at me as if I were her long-lost twin. I wanted to smile, too, but I noticed the faint purple under her right eye. It wasn't completely hidden by her beige foundation. She knew I noticed, and before I could say anything, she began taking our orders. Concerned, I told my family and friends as they were leaving that I was going to stay and speak to her. They understood, and after more congratulations, departed. I waited another hour in the twilight-stained parking lot where I could breathe in the fresh spring breeze. She was one of the first to come out, and she noticed me propped next to the entrance, halting her stride. Penny's face lit up, and there were tears in her eyes. I knew you'd wait for me, Cal. I knew you were a great guy. I think I've always known you had potential, but I guess I was being my own worst enemy. Those words brought back the tiniest memory of what Death had told me months prior. I should say sorry to myself. And she needed to do the same. That's the past, Penny. No animosity. She looked even more grateful then and reached to hug me. I put her hand on her cheek before she could and gently rubbed the purple under her eye. Did he do this to you? I asked, concerned and pissed off. Penny didn't say a word, but her deep brown eyes said it all. He obviously was over the accommodating boyfriend role and had started to asking too much of her, but I would become everything she needed and more. I pulled her into a hug and ran my fingers through her long hair. It won't happen again, love. I'm here now. After that night, things were better than they'd ever been between me and Penny. She'd gotten away from her abusive boyfriend, and together we got him the jail sentence he deserved. We'd spend every moment we had to spare with each other, and it was like we'd never even parted. Even our old inside jokes remained the same. With time, I'd saved enough to buy her the most beautiful ring I could find, and I proposed to her right in the middle of the local high school football field where we'd met so many years ago. A field, maybe not the best setting for a proposal, but it meant so much to the both of us. Flowers filled our house with fragrant smells. I brought one home every day after work. I made reservations every weekend for dates, and no girl could ever mean as much to me as my penny. The wedding was the one she'd always dreamed of when we were younger. A winter wedding in the snow. Everything adorned in blues and whites, and that long-sleeved dress she'd hoped for ever since she saw it in that store window. A year after the marriage, Penny came to me with the best news I'd ever received from her. She was pregnant. We found out it was a girl, and I was every bit the happy father when our Violet came into the world. Dark hair, just like her mother. Two years later, we had our son, Jackson. He looked just like me. Green eyes and a mop of chestnut hair. Violet was over the moon about having a younger sibling. Life was amazing. It was everything death told me would be and more. I chose life the last time I saw him and life chose me. You can imagine my shock the day I found him standing in front of my work desk. I'd been tapping away on my computer, focused on nothing but my work. He broke that trance. 
I became a statue, still as Lot's wife after he turned to salt. After seconds of this vacant stare-off, I broke the stillness. Why? He sighed, much like he had the night we'd met. A disapproving sigh, but now with a bit of apprehension. Something has occurred, Calvin. Something bad. My heart beat swiftly against my ribs. I stopped breathing. What do you mean, bad? A million things raced through my head. My family, my friends, myself. Did something happen to them? Was something going to happen to me? You remember Hale, don't you, Calvin? Hale. A piece of crap I'd put in jail. I hated hearing his name. Yeah, I remember that bastard. Did he finally get what was coming to him? He got out of jail. Calvin. The caution and pity in that one sentence couldn't have been good. I stood up from my office chair, flustered. There's no way! He couldn't have gotten out yet. He received 15 years. It's only been nine. Ever heard of good behavior, Calvin? I was enraged. How could this monster be capable of good behavior? And then I remembered. He fooled Penny for a year. He'd been a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was definitely capable of fooling others. I think you need to come with me, Calvin. I didn't waste any time. I followed him, not bothering telling anyone I was leaving work. But the pieces that were being put together in my mind was anything but okay. I drove 90 all the way home. Beads of sweat had formed across my forehead and my breathing was loudly audible. Death followed me into the house as I rushed inside, but he said nothing. The living room was a mess of broken vases, the one which held all the flowers I'd given to Penny, and a million little petals littered the floor. I was so immensely angry and scared at the same time, scared mostly because of the scene in front of me hinted that nothing good could come from it. I screamed, terror in my voice, Penny, Violet, Jack, where- The master bedroom, Calvin. Death stared from somewhere in my peripheral. He pointed to the door at the end of the hall. The door that was now chopped, broken, standing slightly ajar. I sprinted down the hallway, pushed past the door, not worrying about the sharp splinters that dug into my left hand. The light was off. I wish I hadn't turned it on. Because when I did, I was met with sheer horror. Blood, crimson, painted across white carpet and bedsheets on the walls, painted on the bodies of the three people in my life that meant the most to me. The details are too traumatizing to repeat, but the axe that had been used on all of them was left behind, embedded into my wife's skull. I fell to my knees in front of them, racking sobs so hard they made me puke. I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't speak. I was screaming under the weight of emotional pain. I was hurt. But you said it would be better. 
I turned to death, screaming and seeing red. You said I'd be happy. Why? I sobbed deeply again, unable to contain the lump in my throat. And you were, Calvin. You were happy for several years, but with life comes chances. Good ones and bad ones. Everyone suffers, Calvin. Suffer? I have nothing to live for anymore. I've lost my reasons for living, for working, for loving. That's more than suffering. I couldn't contain the contempt in my voice, and I got dangerously close to that black hole of a face death wore despite having to look up to see it. You're wrong, Calvin. I'm here not only for your family as I have to do my job. He looked at his bony hands and surrender. But I'm also here for you. What? You already know I'm planning to kill myself once again, psychologist? I spat at him, every word drenched in hot rage. Actually, yes. I knew you'd try. You'll go get the pistol from the top shelf of your closet, blow your brains out. You'll do it in a few hours in this very room. But I have another perspective for you. My mouth hung ajar. He knew my plans, knew where the pistol was that I kept for protection, but I couldn't be too surprised. After a moment, I crossed my arms and glared. Oh, another perspective, huh? What? What could possibly make me choose life this time? A life isn't worth living. For the first and last time, Death laid a hand on my shoulder, and although I couldn't see his face, I knew he was looking right into my eyes. You must live, Calvin. Because Hale must die. And you're the one who will make it happen. I thought I heard his lips part into a smile if he had lips. Death made it clear for me once again. What do you say, Calvin? I smiled then too. What must have appeared a sick, sinister grin, but a grin all the same. I'd say I want to live. <laughs>